Come with us on a journey into the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable. We will test your senses and challenge your beliefs. A world where science and religion clash. Or do they? You will meet real people and hear real stories, but you will not believe. You will witness strange sights and hear strange sounds, but you will not believe. This is the New England Ghost Project. Welcome to the Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Ghost Chronicles International. I am Ron Kolick, your host, the gatekeeper of the realm of the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable New England's own friend, Helsing. With me, all the way on, no, yesterday was St. George's Day, but the day after St. George's Day is the gold standard in ghost hunting, Mr. Stephen Parsons. Yo! Yeah. So, St. George's Day, that's the uh, white dragon, right? Uh, No. He's, no, St. George was the slayer of the dragon. Oh. He, he defended maidens and populations from dragons. What he's about... Actually, he's what actually... Is, go on. What, so, Wales has got the red dragon, isn't no, England? No, no, no. Wales' patron saint is St. David. Why did you tell... Oh, never mind. And the Irish patron saint is another Welshman called St. Patrick. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> anyway. And England's patron saint actually isn't St. George. We borrowed him later. Our actual patron saint is St. Edmund, and he's buried in St. Edmunds, in a town called Bury St. Edmunds. Well, he should be, say, buried, that's for damn sure. No, I mean, actually, he is. He, our there first patron... Know. Yeah, because we, we actually... Um, St. George came later, um, with the Crusade period. But mm-hmm. prior to that, our original patron saint was St. Edmund, and he got shot by the Vikings with lots of arrows, and they buried him, and then they named the town Bury St. Edmunds. Yeah, that's pretty good. Well, anyway, that's all intriguing. But we actually have a guest today, and it's someone who has been on the show to, before. He is uh, the... But he came back. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's That was amazing. He is the lead investigator and found, co-founder, I guess, I don't know, uh, founder of uh, Wexford Paranormal, Mr. Michael Benson. How are you doing, guys? Yeah, that's right. I, I am the founder, but that's only because nobody else wanted the job. <laughs> you know, Michael, I, I, I was, uh, I've been doing a lot of uh, research on Ireland, and Ireland, I always thought, was like this idyllic place, and, and we always see the beautiful pictures and the villages, and everybody just having a good time and everything, but I couldn't believe the tumultuous history Ireland has. Oh yeah, and, and and still to this day it continues to uh, uphold with with honor and tradition. I can I can see England's going to get a bashing in a minute, isn't it? <laughs> I I mean, it's if, if Barry has not studied Irish history, I, I recommend it highly because it's an intriguing, uh, <laughs> intriguing uh, story if if you want to call it that through the, through the years, uh, all the way from the Vikings to the very beginning. Who I never knew founded Dublin, but Dublin, but uh, they did, and uh, of course over to Strongbow and uh, the. I mean, it goes on and on. I mean, the, the flight of the earls and everything else. It's 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 and the civil war. You know, Gettysburg. Everybody thinks, oh, Gettysburg was like the the most horrible battle. There was so many people killed in the thing, but Ireland had battles that more people were killed in. Oh, absolutely. I mean, in 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 between sixteen forty one and and. and uh... 
uh, in the 1600s, yeah, Cromwell would have ran rampant around the country here. 1798, I mean, a lot of the things you just mentioned, the Vikings, for example, the Normans, they, they would have all entered Ireland uh, initially uh, at locations not too far from where I live, down around Bano Bay and, and, and uh, areas of that, that nature, which would be in the southeast corner of Ireland. Um, and as Steve would be familiar with from having been there himself, Vinegar Hill, um, the Battle oh, yeah. of 1798, which took place on June the 21st. Well, it took place over a period of six weeks, but the biggest single element of it was on June the 21st when <clears throat> in a, in a, a four-hour period, uh, up to 1,500 people were slaughtered on, on Vinegar Hill. Yeah. Um, and, and Vinegar Hill, it has nothing to do with vinegar. It's, it's just a, an evolved name when, when, when the English were here and, and, and couldn't pronounce the Irish Canuck na or Hill of the Berries is what it actually translates to <laughs> but it sounded like vinegar and that's that's where the name came from wow that's pretty cool that's... Yeah. yeah I mean 20,000 oh. people in the space of six weeks lost their lives in, in, in that uh, in that in that particular battle and most of them history tells us were, were women and children and there's actually currently a four-year long uh, research project going on into Vinegar Hill and into the nature of the battles and where they took place and there's a lot of geophysics has been undertaken. Actually, I'm working on that documentary as it happens at the moment, so it's very interesting and it's revealed some some interesting new theories and concepts as a result as well. Oh, that's cool. And and uh, we had uh, Jackie Hines on for St. Patrick's Day, of course. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and she would be very much well versed in the, uh, the the annals and the history of that location and those battles. Yeah, she. she we had a, a great uh, conversation, which intrigued me even more, and, and which got me into studying more and more about Irish history and it, Irish castles, for instance, and the, and all the, the hauntings. But even uh, it, it was the intriguing thing was, uh, and I'm sure you. Well, you maybe I don't know if, how much Irish history you know. Uh, uh, Michael, but you ever hear of the Leviathan? Leviathan? No, enlighten me, Ron. <laughs> it's nice for me to learn things as well. Yeah, it, it's something that I never knew. It was, at one time, the largest telescope in the world. <clears throat> and it was, yes, Mr. Parsons? Built by my family. Was it really? Yep. So why don't you fill us in with it, Phil, Michael, well, and I? Seriously, I'm, I'm, as Michael knows, I'm a descendant of the Ross family, who were the, or the, uh, the Earls of Ross, the Parsons family. And uh, they are the builders of the Leviathan, which is housed at, or it was housed, I think. It's still there. It's still there. Still yes, it is. Burcastle, uh, which yes, was formed exactly. in, just outside the, yeah, in County Offaly, just outside the town of... Uh, is it, what's the town called? Because it used to be Parsons Town. Wow, listen to this. He doesn't even know his own history. <laughs> no, I don't know what the Irish renamed it. Um, Do you blame him? <laughs> no, well, you see, in actual fact, in actual fact, although I'm English, the, the majority of the time my family were Irish uh, because they were put there. Oh, God. Well, I mean, one half the family of Viking descendants, the other half are English. What Irish, what, what I, um, what Michael would know as planters, uh, who were sent over in the Tudor period mm -hmm. in the 16th century, uh, to, to colonize Ireland. Um, and, uh, actually they became the Earls of Ross. And, uh, one of the, the great grandson of the first Earl 
was an astronomer, and he built this bloody huge telescope, mm-hmm. which was the biggest in, in the world at the time. Exactly, absolutely. And, and it was, I don't think the telescope has survived, I think... Yes, it has. Not in a, not, yeah, but it's not in a working form, though, is it? It's just the basic tube, I, I think, because it was a reflector telescope um, yeah. with this specially polished and ground mirror which was which the the lens was actually made there on the castle grounds right. they actually built the giant kiln uh which was undertaken in the south just to make the lens on it yeah and the, the, what what's also uh interesting is the the family had a great engineering history as well as the the telescope uh it was also a member of the family who uh was the inventor of the the gas turbine engine or the steam turbine Mm-hmm. Um, Charles Parsons, and he was he was also a member of the family. I think he was a son of the builder of the Leviathan, and he, he came up with the steam turbine, which we use in power stations, and was actually a forerunner of the jet engine. Oh. But but <laughs> the family have a darker side, um, and I've no doubt we'll get to to Mr. Benson's favourite haunted house. <laughs> Where the devil also played cards, <laughs> <laughs> and they have an excellent chipper, uh, because the family were also founding members of the Hellfire Club and mm. Devil Shippers. Yeah, yeah, and, and and really, you know, the story attached to Hellfire Club in the Dublin Mountains is 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 a mirrored duplicate of the story attached to the location down here in Wexford that you're talking about, which is <laughs> Ireland's most haunted house. Mm-hmm. Really. If you believe the placards at the side of the road. Well, it's written down, so it must be true, right? No. <laughs> I, wow. Michael, Michael will delight in telling you the story that he's told me in fact, uh, on, on numerous occasions and has tried to put right uh, this slur on... on so I, what, what, why don't we let him I'm about to <laughs> introduce it to talk about Loftus and... <clears throat> What really happened on the second floor? Uh, there we go. Can, can open worms everywhere. Yeah, look at I mean, if it, 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 for anyone to be to be fair, anybody that hasn't visited, you know, on, on just on the basis of the location itself, it is it is quite spectacular to see. But the story that's attached to the the, the Den Loftus Hall, and and I'm quite specific in, in saying those words because documentation and history tells us that in uh, up to 1868 uh, Loftus as it was then the tapestry room was on the first floor Uh, presently it's on the ground floor and it also was the case that between 1868 and 1870 the tapestry room as it was and the the room adjacent to it were uh, knocked into one and turned into a billiard room and then it was in 1870 over a period of a, a number of years then the the property that stood there was raised to the ground and the present one was, was placed in its stead. But interestingly enough, when we were researching the location, we, we went to the library and we, we foraged around for the, the six-inch ordnance survey maps that would have been um, available. The first one pre-1870 and the second one then the subsequent to 1870. And when you overlay one against the other, the perimeter of the property pretty much matches up, give or take a millimetre or two here and there for, for human error. But the two properties themselves don't overlap. In fact, they, they just touch corner to corner on really? the, the, the back right-hand side as you look at it. Yeah, so that, that's, that was an interesting discovery from our point of view because historically as well, there were uh, claims and reports that the original building was, or where the occurrences took place, was to the, to the back 
right of the present one as you look at it from the road, you know. But of course, um, what you're actually saying is that this whole story and this hole in the ceiling are a modern recreation, fabrication. Well, even if they go back to the to the time itself and to Anne and her experiences with the handsome stranger, I suppose we have to look at it. You know, we're trying to analyze it with with contemporary mindsets and contemporary social values. When perhaps back then, yes, there may have been a, a stranger that arrived at the door, and yes, Anne may have become enamored with them. But you know, social class and, and social standing were driven by so many conventions at the time. And if Anne and this guy had an encounter, I mean. You know, if we look at the, the greatest probability or possibility in a dynamic like that, it's it's very probable that she became pregnant. But where was your social standing if that was the occurrence at the time, you know, given the perspective on um, children out of marriage and so forth? So rather than suffer that indignity, they would construct a grandiose story of this extreme nature to, to, to mask that, you know. Now, that's just me kind of spitballing <laughs> theories and ideas, but I think it's reasonable to, to make the case, you know. What what's always intrigued me um, about the Loftus Hall story, where the, uh, the this stranger arrives in the in this in the middle of a storm and he gets taken in by the family, and then they're playing cards one night, and they notice his cloven uh, feet underneath yeah. the table, and then you know in a flash and a bang and a smell of brimstone, he vanishes through the ceiling. Is almost it's it's almost um, a direct lift from the from. The, the Hellfire story up at Killakee. Oh, it, uh, it is a direct lift from, but from you've my also got, Well, I, I, I struggled and then remembered that you've also got virtually the same story at Glam's Castle in Scotland. Yep, yep. Um, I mean, I, I know that there are family connections between the uh, those up in Dublin and those down at Loftus because, um, that, well, there was certainly friendship and kinship links between the two. Do you think they just borrowed the story from from the Hellfire Club to cover up this this pregnancy? Or well, look, I mean, I, I, I'm I'm giving that as an example, but well, yeah, really, I'm, I'm 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 running with it. <laughs> yeah, and and, and, and it's really to illustrate, you know, the, the case that where any two or more uh, possible explanations exist. Generally, the simplest explanation of the two is where we need to look, and I would think, I would argue, uh, for example, it's far more likely that something like. Um, a pregnancy as a result of an encounter would be mm-hmm. more likely than uh, some sort of um, chance encounter with demon of the underworld, you know, presenting <laughs> himself to you know to play a game of cards when there was little else to do on a wild and stormy night. You know? <laughs> well, they obviously found something else to do on a wild and stormy night because she got pregnant, didn't she? Well, there we go. Yeah, yeah, you know. Um, well, actually, I, I get carried away with innuendo, so I'm going to stop now. Um, <laughs> But, uh, you know, to, without going too far, I see your point. Um, <laughs> uh, but, you know, the, the other thing then, of course, is that if we take the popular present uh, story as it's presented, you know, the, the location that's there wasn't raised to the ground, as history tells us, but it was significantly renovated. And that, uh, subsequent to 1870, they added a third story to the, to the property, added a third floor. And to this day, the hole in the ceiling cannot be repaired. Now, I find it interesting. Uh, to consider that if 
hundred and something odd years previous to the uh, placement of this third story, the, the, the event itself took place. How then is it possible that there's a hole in a ceiling that didn't exist at the time of the occurrence that can't be fixed? You know, so you could argue, if we're talking about holes, that there's a bigger hole in the story than there is in the roof. Well, I don't know. I, could, could be paranormal, was, you know. Well, I always, I always like the uh, when you show when you show the photographs of the hole. You always uh, used to point out the existence of the rafters immediately beyond it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, he I got did. through. He, he hit the plaster, but he missed all the rafters on the way through. Well, you know, devil, he can do that. He can, yeah, but wasn't it very considerate to, cons- to to maintain the structural integrity of the property? I know. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> You know, for, for future generations to either enjoy or endure, depending on your perspective on it. Or make money on Well, the thing, the thing is, I mean, when you do compare it with the um, Montpellier Hill story, oh. there he seemed to have got out through the chapel roof without leaving any trace at all. Um, I don't think he even, leave the smudge, uh, even left a, a burnt smudge on the ceiling when he vacated that property. Well, chronologically, if, if, if it happened in, in Loftus Hall first, then maybe he had kind of refined and honed his... Perfected it. Oh, yeah. there you go. So, yeah. uh, Steve, I have to ask you a question. The, the, the one in Scotland, is that the one where the, the master locks himself in a room and the devil plays card on Sunday? Uh, that's the one that's Glam's Castle. It's, yeah, the only okay, other, yeah. it's the only other story that I've found so far where the devil plays cards. Um, in, in terms of British paranormal history, there are lots of stories of the devil playing cards, which I think are apocryphal of gambling. And mm. the um, and this idea of you know gambling it was was considered to be uh, almost being in league with the devil, and there were many gamblers who were said to have sold the souls to the devil, particularly if they were having a lucky streak. Right here, here in the United States, of course, you get a, the devil just fiddles around. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah. Down in, that's down in Georgia, though, isn't it? Right, yeah. yeah, yeah. When he goes down to Georgia, yeah. yeah. So anyway. So it's uh, I have to mention, too, I, I saw a, a picture of you on Facebook and it looked like you were using uh, ground penetrating radar. Is that correct? I'm, I'm not sure the device you were carrying. Uh, oh, that, that's a recent one. I, I, it was a white screen and a, a, a hood cover over. No, no, actually, yeah. that's, that was a complete aside from our discussion of tonight. No, I was shooting some aerial footage for a, for a, a war movie. As it happens, I was flying the uh, aerial camera system for, for oh, a job. Oh, okay. No, that's curious. I was, I, no, I was just curious about it because I saw it. I couldn't quite make out what it was. I thought, well, maybe it was ground-penetrating radar. Uh, um, no, not on that occasion. But interestingly enough, going back to the discussion we had at the start about Vinegar Hill and the, the, the research project that's been ongoing up there, they have had geophysics in. They have uh, looked and mapped uh, a lot of the area around there to try and find um, I, and to identify what has been described historically as, as mass graves and burial pits that had been dug. And they have they have found three pockets of, of, of water pits. Now, obviously, without excavating further, all we know is that there are pits there. Mm-hmm. What they were for or why they happened is, is, is still subject to discussion. But even in terms of the dig itself... The artefacts that they've uncovered um, has resulted in that battlefield now becoming the largest archaeological battlefield site in the Republic of Ireland. Oh, wow. And, that, yeah. and that's just uh, a stone throw for you, right? 14 mile up the road, 20 minutes of a drive, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now, and that documentary will be released, I think, around about the 21st of June. I think they plan to release it um, for the anniversary, which is just as well because I have to finish it still. But um, uh, it, So that will be available for anyone that's interested in seeing it uh, when, when, when the time comes, you know. Uh, other 
discoveries that seem to be coming from it without giving too much away. There's a location called Beale's Barn, which was made available to incarcerate um, um, redcoats and so forth at the time mm-hmm. of the battle that had not been located or identified. And they expected that if they did find it, there would be some sort of uh, underground um foundation or something that they'd uncover um, they then did some research, found references to a place called Beale's Barn went to see the venue, got an archaeological um, expert in, in terms of buildings and property who unfortunately dismissed the location they had identified as being Beale's Barn because some of the, the development around it was, was post a 1798 but interestingly enough he said but this one and there's a little innocuous building right next to it on the left mm-hmm. that he would argue now is Beals Barn and they reckon they have found the very location where they would have incarcerated some of the troops at the time before oh, taking well. them back up the hill and having summary trials and killing them and piking them and hanging them so oh, this was garage being being devious and, and, and bad and remember as well it's, it's often portrayed as Irish English in terms of the fighting, but there were a lot of Irish fighting for on the on the side of the English, like the Cork militia would have all been um, native Irish people and native Irish right. people. Well, well, I mean, since the beginning of Strongwell, they used to marry off their daughters all the time. So uh, they ended up a lot of them were were actually uh, stayed in the Irish fold against the British. That's right. Yeah. Well, assimilate or die, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> True. So, it, the Vinegar Hill uh, is is that a historic site where where it's uh, cannot be developed? In other words, I'm not sure what they call them in Ireland, but uh, uh, is, is there any preservation orders and so on? Uh, to an extent, yes, because of its historical significance. But there is a huge, big uh, pylon, radio pylon, and the. the emits huge levels of EMF so that created some difficulty for them with the geophysics and things as well you know um, that's a bit of an eyesore on what would otherwise be a fantastic location to visit even from uh, the capacity to see all around the countryside and, and that, that's why the insurgents were camped there because they could observe from from a, a position of 360 degrees uh, attacks from troops and so on at the time you know right. now you, if there were mass graves there, they could never excavate them, right, for research? Um, th- that's a question I couldn't answer now, but if you, if, if you ever wanted to follow up on that discussion, uh, Ron O'Flaherty, who would be one of the senior archaeologists, would be a guy certainly worth talking to. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I've I, got I was... to say from personal experience with Vinegar Hill, um, and I'm bringing it over to the paranormal a little bit as well. Oh, that's a good thing. There are... There, there, well, I think during one of my early stays in County Wexford, I made a point because we, we happened to be there over the period of the midsummer, the June mm-hmm. the 21st. And um, the, there were a number of reports received from visitors um, that indicated that early in the morning, uh, around sunrise on, on, on the day of the battle, then uh, people had had a number of experiences. They'd heard running men, they'd heard uh, the, the shouting and really? uh, what sounded like horses. So I actually went up there, uh, drove up there, and the, it was still dark when I went set off, got there uh, before sunrise, and witnessed a magnificent sunrise. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I failed, of course, to uh, encounter anything paranormal. But, yeah. the, but, but the hill itself does have, um, you know, quite a, a number of 
ghostly tales and interestingly it does come from tourists who have you know just been wandering the site because um because it's it's a landmark site and it is mm-hmm. as, as michael said it, it's got a commanding view over the surrounding uh, countryside and over the town of wex of uh, ennis corthy um uh, but these tourists who who really it would appear didn't know anything about other uh, accounts came up with really uh, quite similar versions of their experiences which i found quite intriguing yeah and that that same story interestingly enough of, of hearing phantom battle cries and horses running and stampeding um is also referenced in Camolan, which would be a further 12 miles north of enniscorthy but again the site of another uh, significant battle around that time you know mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and I mean, in fact, you, it, you, to plug my book, it is mentioned in one of the Michael, what is your book? Uh, Haunted Wexford, and believe it or not, Steve, that is uh, four years on the bookshelves this summer. Wow. Yeah. Doesn't sound yeah. like it, it? It's available on Amazon. Uh, yes, you, absolutely. Amazon, Book Depository, any of those locations, you'll find it there as well. Excellent. I, I actually have a copy, a signed copy tonight. Thank you very much for that. You're welcome, of course. Now, Michael, have you, uh, as far as you're investigating, what type of evidence have you uh, uh, gathered, if any, on uh, battlefields? Yeah, that, that's an interesting one. We, we, we don't put very much really if any time into battlefields themselves we prefer kind of structural locations for a number of reasons they tend to be drier and warmer most of the time (laughs) you know but look at their their, their enclosed environments as well battlefields when you talk about audible phenomena or take for example um dun cannon fort you know Sounds can travel up to 10 miles across a body of water and things like that. So, oh, yeah. you know, how can we evidence in real terms in, a, in an environment where it's anything but controlled, where these uh, phenomena, if you like, or these anomalies are, are, are originating from? You know, I think Battlefield right. is a far more popular endeavor stateside, from what I can gather. So let, let me go right into it, because there are some methods that, that people use, uh, investigators use, which include EVPs. Is that something used in your investigations? Oh, for sure, yes, in terms of the, 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 the standard practices that are employed. Yes, of course, EVP. Um, and, and in doing that, of course, not just using digital recorders, but experimenting with um, Magnetic analog cassette recorders, uh, transistor based, and and even using all reel-to-reel valve state uh, recording um, mm-hmm. units as well, just to see if across the, that spectrum of um, equipment you will gather the same um, evidence or, or, or phenomena, or if it's only on one source, if it's only on the, the magnetic ones. What does that say about how these? These are captured or formed or even how they originate or if it's only on the digital recorders or what does that say as well. So the techniques and exploring the mechanisms of those types of things, as Steve would know, interest me to the same extent as trying to capture the anomalies or the phenomena themselves as well. You know. And we are actually coming up to a break right now, so uh, we will talk a little bit more about EVPs after the break. And, and uh, okay. I'd like and anyways, you'll listen to Ghost Chronicles International with uh, the most reverend Steve Parsons.
And the most Irish, Michael Benton, uh, Benson, excuse me, changed the name, didn't I? Uh, and, of course, uh, Ron Kolak. We'll be right back right here on Tojinet and Pararex Radio. Welcome to Tokinet, radio with a cutting edge. Feel the need to do some soul searching or make some changes in your life to create a more positive future? Then Circles of Wisdom is just the place for you. Circles of Wisdom is a metaphysical bookstore and more, located on Route 28 in downtown Andover, Massachusetts. We carry a large selection of books and music, crystals and gemstones, jewelry and gifts, sage, aromatherapy, and so much more, all in a relaxing and welcoming atmosphere. We offer classes on a variety of topics like yoga, Reiki, psychic development, alternative healing, and personal transformation. For guidance on this journey we call life, get a reading from one of our many readers at Circles of Wisdom, 90 Main Street in downtown Andover, right next to Bertucci's. Call us at 978-474-8010 or check us out on the web at www.circlesofwisdom.com. Lots to see and do in a feel-good place, an oasis in this hectic world. files from the bad oh sorry that was last night wasn't it this is ghost chronicles international um with your number one main host ron kolek me the subservient co-host as he keeps reminding me and our very special guest from just across the water where it went on a clear and sunlit day i can actually wave to one another the co-founder of wexford paranormal michael professor michael benson or drone, pi- drone captain Michael Benson, <laughs> or film director Michael Benson, or musician Michael Benson. And all of which pay abysmally, but however, <laughs> I pursue them nonetheless. Yeah, when you talk about credentials and establishing credentials, Steve, you're the gold standard, and I'm pretty much just standard. I know, we're, <laughs> oh, we're far from it. There we're is, all there that is, way, Michael. There is one. There is. There are very few paranormal investigators or investigation groups that um, I would commend to anybody. But Wexford Paranormal, um, <laughs> under the leadership of Michael's Benson and Carol, are one of the very few. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. And I've always been proud to be associated with Wexford Paranormal, albeit in a very minor way, because we're just like over the water. 
Obviously, when we're always pleased and proud to have you over here as well. So, you know, Mike Lee wouldn't even say that about me. So that's that's a that's a good uh, uh, endorsement. Well, absolutely. But Ron, we have been working hard on 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 getting you across for the last number of years. God, haven't we? (laughs) Yeah, they're building my ship. It'll be so dead soon. That's what it is, yeah. Because I thought it might have to be kind of an eighteen thing, or you know, yeah. Although I think it may, maybe dirigible. We're trying to get Harland and yeah, we're trying to get Harland and Wolf to uh, recreate it, uh, and you vote for him. Mm. Uh, maybe a dirigible, I could do that. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> uh, anyway, so uh, EVPs, we were talking a little bit about it, and uh, that's that's something you use according to what I just heard before the break, and um, what. What uh, I mean, what is your as far as your methods uh, of EVPs? How do you analyze them? <laughs> I get somebody else to sit there. Ah, and there you go. <laughs> uh, spoken, spoken like a true leader. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've served my time to that practice, and it would be remiss of me to not allow someone else to develop and hone their skills by doing it as well. <laughs> That's good. That's that's all leadership ability. You make somebody else do it so they can learn. Absolutely. Uh, Delegation is key. There speaks Ron Kolick, the man who doesn't know how to delegate. Yeah. Uh, Is there someone you want to give credit to? Um, In in the team, I know we 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 share it indiscriminately. I think that's fair. That's only fair. Uh, Fair enough. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I mean. I have a website up on our, our page too, so that people can find out more about uh, Wexford Paranormal too. Yeah, yeah, they'll find bits and pieces, and, and you know they'll even find that perspectives now and and practice and approach would would have evolved and changed from even some of what's written there and and, and how we saw things seven, eight, nine, ten years ago. You know, mm-hmm. and I think that's important too. If if you can look back at your perspectives of of, of a decade ago and 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 not have moved or are still confident or comfortable necessarily in, in how you see things then I'd have to question for myself if I've evolved in any way as a, as a, a pursuer of the subject or somebody who's interested in, in, in paranormal investigation and research techniques and, and, and that type of, of a field of interest you know One of the things that always intrigued me about uh, battlefield uh, EVPs or battlefield uh, reported noises and stuff is that uh, no one uses like isolation booths on the battlefield, which I, I are isolation chambers, which are I would think would would solve that problem of picking up errant noises. Um, Steve, is uh, parasite? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I I understand where you're where you're coming from, but then we have to go back and consider, you know, the nature by which these these audible phenomena are, are captured or formed. I mean, if it's environmental and we isolate the recorder from the environment, are we then isolating it from the potential of capturing environmental occurrences? Yeah, good point. But you could do two, actually. You could do one outside and one inside. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, yeah, there's nothing like adding layers of complication to. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, in other words, Steve has never taken the t- t- the oh, time to do it because he doesn't oh, want to oh, bother with it. Well, well. As a, matter, as a matter of fact, parascience, parascience. has spent a considerable amount of time. A considerable. Uh, in, How in much is considerable time? Because we're different considerable se- time. Several, in the several years. 
Oh, I see. Um, yeah. Investigate. We we used to. Do, uh, we have a battlefield here in 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 uh, England. Really, they had battles uh, in England. One or two. In oh. fact, we had the we had the the bloodiest battle uh, in European history, which took place uh, on Palm Sunday, fourteen sixty one, the Battle of Towton. Yeah, but we, nonetheless, we, uh, a, a few years. A few years. That was the bloodiest battle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah uh, uh, it, it was way more casualties than Gettysburg. Oh. Anyway, uh, a few years later, and just a few miles down the road, um, on the third of July, was fought the Battle of Marston Moor. Uh, this was took place in the English Civil War. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a, it is a battlefield like several other Civil War battlefields that have well-attested ghost stories attached to them. And it was within striking distance of our team um, based up in the northwest. And so annually we used to go up and we would spend uh, several days around the period of the anniversary, which was said to be the key dates for the haunting. Uh, it, examining the claims and seeing if people you know if, if what people were saying and many of them were sound related now we didn't ever do uh evp although we did use audio recordings throughout the investigations separately so and, and let me stop you right there with, steve let me stop you right there what's the difference between doing evp and using a sound recorder well, we weren't specifically looking for electronic voices and we never have done um right. we, we have captured uh, 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 classic EVPs um, by, you know, we have audio recorders running and they've picked up anomalies that people were not aware of and right. didn't hear. So that would be an, an, an electronic, you know, that would right. exactly. as EVP. Right. But we weren't specifically asking for communications as they do with EVP. You know, we weren't mm-hmm. asking questions and waiting for responses. We were recording the ambient environment sounds, the, the mm-hmm. normal acoustics. Um, but um, at, at, at the particular battle site, we did notice we were getting unusual acoustic effects. And what we tried to do, um, and this comes back to this idea of trying to uh, f- find a source or l- locate the source of these sounds, was we started to develop a technique uh, that we'd used inside buildings where we were using three microphone arrays to triangulate a sound source. Out, outdoors, that was incredibly difficult because oh, yeah. the scale is much larger. So what we actually did um, is we used um, an array of five microphones, and these were these were very, very, very directional microphones. So they only had a narrow uh, 10, 15 degree spread angle off the uh, off the front of the microphone to try and locate the sources of the sounds because we were we were fairly sure that we were dealing with natural sounds we were dealing with uh, industry we were dealing with traffic we were dealing with uh, there was an airfield nearby and there was also a small you know the, the battlefield uh, wasn't isolated from the community it, mm-hmm. it's in between small towns and what we thought of people were interpreting as the sounds of battle because you know, people were saying they'd heard these sounds of gunfire. We were considering that they they might just have a normal aspect to them. And, and in fact, when we did look at the sound traces, although they were quite, you know, it was it was it it wasn't empirical, but the sound did seem to indicate, you know, quite strongly um, that the sound was emanating from the from the the town of um, uh. Oh, I can't remember the name of the town now. Uh, up on up on the side of the battlefield, rather than from the battlefield itself. Mm-hmm. Oh, intriguing. So, 
Uh, I forgot what I asked, Michael. Uh, <laughs> EVP on battlefield, so oh, was it? Oh, okay, okay. So, uh, all right. So that's that's intriguing. And did you ever get? And I asked you if you you picked up any evidence, and uh, I think that's kind of where it was. And and I forget you said you didn't do too much work on battlefields, but you, have you ever had any experiences or anything on battlefields? Uh, no, not 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 so much. Okay. You know, I, I think. No, but I think it's partially as well because they're so close at hand to us, and it's all such a matter of fact part of our our our, our history and our backstory as as a nation. You know, we we tend to not focus on them at all. It's a funny thing, really, in a lot of ways. I mean, when you talk about phenomena in terms of audio and, and, and audible phenomena in general, the one one story that, that I, I can tell you that I thought was quite fun. Now, it's anecdotal from my perspective because I don't have the recording, but there was a, a national radio station came down to Enniscorted Castle. They'd heard a little bit about the backstory and what was going on and so forth. And They came down to interview um, the manager and myself for, for a piece for the radio. And when we were finished, I said to them, look at there's no one here now except the two of you, two two girls, um, two presenters, and myself. I said, just take time now to, sit, to, to settle in and let the place kind of settle down around you, and, you know, see see how you feel about it. And if you fancy it, just you know, call out and say hello. I said, the worst that will happen is you're talking to yourself. Yeah. <laughs> we were sitting in the um, the roach floor, Steve, as you'll know, is is the main sitting room on the first floor of the castle. Mm-hmm. And the girls were sitting on the small two-seater and the large three-seater sofa, and you know where they're positioned. And I was stuck with my back to the, the the brick archway that leads into the bedroom then. So the first girl said, uh, yeah, hi, we've just come. We'd heard about the castle, wanted to find out a bit more and to say hello. Um, and obviously they were referencing Jim, who we talk about in the context of <laughs> castle and the second girl said same yeah same here jim had heard about you heard about the castle wanted to find out some more and to come down and say hello and with that a deep toned male voice from the proximity of the nursery which was just beyond the bedroom called out and said hello (laughs) (laughs) which i found quite fascinating because i'm familiar with the castle i'm relatively familiar with the the acoustic properties and 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 proximities of sounds within the castle mm-hmm. but not to just accept that it had come from there I said to the guys and I said pop up and go over to the window just check that there hasn't been anybody who's come in the side entrance of the castle or the side um, driveway if you like uh, and that we're hearing their voices coming through an open window and that but we couldn't we couldn't locate anybody in the area so that that was quite interesting it's the only time for me um, as a as a, a witness to an occurrence like that that I've been in the castle mm. where I heard audibly in the environment a male voice responding with a hello to two people saying a hello at that particular time you know now as i say it is anecdotal because i have nothing audibly to present mm-hmm. that that you that can recreate that or, or uh, is is an audible capture of it but the presenters themselves have the original recording of it because they were still recording at the time oh wow now, you know i don't i don't find that particularly um Challenging. Okay. It's surprising because down the years, uh, those are the sort of events that have taken place for our teams as well. Where, you know, this one-off, uh, seemingly intelligent response to something that's going on at that time. Um, it seems to be entirely spontaneous. It's not reproducible. 
Um, but it does seem to be that the voice or the response is linked to uh, what's taking place at that time. Um, mm-hmm. We've we've encountered this about six or seven times, and we've actually got the recordings of the responses from from these various times. But they we've never called them EVPs. Um, no, because it wouldn't and, be. And, if you actually heard it, it wouldn't be an EVP. Well, well, only, well, what's interesting is, is, is not all of the occurrences were heard. All of them were obviously recorded, mm-hmm. but about 20% of them were actually heard in real time um, right. by, by uh, the observer team right. or by, by witnesses. But a lot of them went, went unnoticed until the recordings were played back. And, mm-hmm. But it was the fact that they were so uh, reactive or um, responsive to not necessarily what we were saying, but what people were also doing, uh, like almost like this was an additional participant making a wry comment on, on proceedings. Mm-hmm. Okay. And we've encountered that number of occasions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In terms of secondhand stories, and again, to the place of the castle, just with regard to... Um, a voice phenomena, or, or let's call them, for, for want of a better tag, disembodied voices. Um, there was a, a parent and a child visiting the castle, and they had climbed the staircase, only for the mum to come down a little bit irate and ask why the staff from downstairs were calling their... I can't, I can't even remember if it was a son or a daughter, by their name. Um, but there were no other visitors in the castle at the time other than these two people and the staff downstairs. The staff wouldn't have had any knowledge of the child's name because they wouldn't have signed the visitor's book until they were leaving in any case. Um, but they didn't want to tell the visitors that there weren't anyone else present in the castle because they didn't want them to. <laughs> but that's just another example that was shared with me by the staff as well. Um, isn't, so it, that, isn't that how we... You know how we get involved in the, in the in the cases we do get involved. It's it's the experience of someone. Uh, you know, sometimes it's secondhand, sometimes it's firsthand. But uh, until we someone comes up with the experience, then we really have no way of knowing if if a place has a paranormal literary, for lack of a better word. That's right, yeah. And I mean, it was actually the manager uh, at the time, uh, interesting enough, who happened to be Jackie Hines, that contacted us uh, and asked us to come up. And we've been lucky enough for the last seven or more years to have ongoing, consistent access to that location. And that's that's a, a fabulous opportunity for one thing and privilege for, 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 for another. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So what, what is the most intriguing place that, that you've investigated it with uh, Wexford Paranormal? Um, the most intriguing place. Uh, there, the, it's actually a private house, a private uh-huh. house that, that um, we were asked to look at. And in terms of very quick backstory, the family had experienced so many things that they couldn't explain that they actually left the house. They then rented the house subsequently to two more families who, in a very short, short space of time, also left and refused to stay because of the the occurrences that it apparently seemed to be going on. Oh, cool. When we had access to the location, there, there was no live feed of electricity even into the house. So that was interesting. We had to bring generators and, and leave them at a distance from the location and ran cables in to run our DVR monitors. Oh, wow. You know, and aside from personal experiences on the night, the, the thing that I, I find fascinating is the fact that During one of the breaks, I was stood behind the breakfast bar in the kitchen. The DVR monitor was just in front of me. The screen 
was facing towards three of the team members who were sitting outside the breakfast bar. And we were just chatting about various things that had happened, observations that had been made, and what we might do at, in the next round of um, exploring the house. During the conversation, the DVR monitor, I think, Steve, you're familiar with this story as well, from, from having to, had to listen to me tell it before. But, <laughs> the DVR monitor went off, and I thought, oh, the, the um, petrol is gone in the generators. But when I looked down, the pilot lights were still on on all of the um, socket boards and extension panels. And I thought, all right, okay, the fuse is gone in the cable. So we changed the fuse. That was no good. We changed the cable. It still wouldn't work. So I said to the guys, look, it's fine. We can't see the the various camera setups, but it is recording. So we will be able to review them at a later point in time. Mm -hmm. Some five, ten minutes later, as we were still chatting away, the pilot light on the monitor came on. The screen lit up, all of the camera positions were visible for a short period of time, and then it went off again. And the guy said, oh, it came on. Oh, no, it's gone off again. I said, no, it can't have come on. They said, yes, it did. The pilot light came on, the screen lit up. I said, no, I actually saw it illuminate you, but it can't have come on. They said, what do you mean it can't have come on? I said, well, because for the last 10 minutes, I've been holding the end of the plug in my hand. <laughs> plugged in. Now, I know you can, Steve, we've talked about this in terms of capacitors and, mm -hmm. and you know, so forth, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure over 10 minutes would it would it hold it and then suddenly dissipate energy to the point where uh, it could illuminate the screen. Well, but well, well uh, yeah, a capacitor certainly could. I mean, they use as storage batteries in some radios, for example, where they hold the mm. memories. And I've had plenty of belts off capacitors that have been, you know, switched off and unplugged for days. But yeah. but uh, that said, um, you know, the whole story. Um, which you've told me, I think we agreed that there were some aspects to it that, that were difficult to, to explain, just, just explain by saying, oh, well, the capacitor discharged because uh, that capacitor on its own wouldn't have had the capability of supplying that much current load, Yeah, I don't, yeah. I don't think. Yeah, and um, I don't either, you know. You know, so, yeah, I mean, yes, a capacitor could discharge, you know, and, and, and in the case of a jukebox, that we, on a case that we did in, in England, it did have enough to power the jukebox for a moment or two. Mm -hmm. um, but you're talking about a completely different co uh, current load for a CRT screen. Um, but that, that failure of a, of a DVR system is one of the reasons why, why we ditched ours, because we realized that they were all on this common cable system through a common box. And after a number of uh, failures, um, we, we got rid of that weakness and we switched over to, uh, we went back all the way back to camcorders, where each camcorder was an independent recorder. Yeah, which is, we, yeah we still use camcorders as well. Mm -hmm. um, and we, we got rid of the DVR. <laughs> well, that story is intriguing as well, because I, I'm sure Steve will agree with me as well, is that a great deal of, the, at least the, the, the experiences that I've had, have happened not so much when I've been looking for something, but just going about doing my everyday thing. Uh, oh, God, and, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and that, that was an occurrence, funny enough, when you talk about that, in that same location, Michael Carroll, um, who uh, Steve would know is six foot plus several inches and quite a, a sizable man and very little would, would um, phase him. But while we were setting up the DVR system, he was in a hallway and a, a, a large piece of architrave, door architrave, 
appeared to be thrown up the hall beside him with, with no one there except himself to uh, to witness it, you know, and, and, and that's interesting. Now, again, it's purely anecdotal. And, and I do want to say this as well. In terms of integrity as researchers of a subject that really we're re- we are only scratching the surface of it, in, in my opinion, you know, we, we're there to hopefully provide a positive service, especially when people are, are frightened by their thoughts about what's going on. And we have to separate their thoughts from the actual factual occurrence if we can because you know we make our thoughts about an experience our experience philosophically you know um so if i can't explain something i have to be very clear that it is just the case that i can't explain it it doesn't mean somebody else might not be able to or that science will catch up and then explain it in six mm-hmm. months six years 60 years from now you know but if it is significantly unexplainable then for me to be to be the fairest I can be to the, the client in this case, I can only say this to me is significantly unexplainable. If by extension I label it paranormal, I'm very possibly projecting a personal narrative onto something and I then have overstepped the mark, arguably, in terms of the service I'm providing to the person in question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the amount of times I've put, just because some, you can't explain it doesn't mean it's unexplainable to paranormal yeah. groups who, who immediately, uh, when they're confronted with anything that that is outside their scope of explanation. And it's usually only because they don't bother looking. Um, You know, they rush headlong to label things as paranormal and as extraordinary evidence of, uh, indeed, proof of the paranormal. Right, but you also get that on the other other side of the the spectrum as well, where you have someone like Joe Nichols who would take Michaels to say, oh, yeah, there was just a capacitor there. That's explained, done with. Uh, no, course. More, I mean, no, more, yeah. no more thought into it at all. Just that's it. Yeah, and but these. That's but, what it was. But, yeah, I mean, the fault lies both sides. But the mm-hmm. the problem is there are, there are a great many more paranormal investigators oh, yeah. than there are Joe Nickel, and this is why we end up with this situation. I mean, you know, social media now is the breeding ground for the orb is back, um, big time oh, here in the UK. No, but it it faded away, um, and common sense prevailed. But but there is a a whole generation of investigators out there now who have come to the, you know, it's almost like a second or third wave of investigators who've come along, and they are discovering things that were discovered and considered and moved on from fifteen years yeah. ago. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I remember having a discussion quite recently on another show about that very same subject. Somebody had, had um, come into the chat room and inquired about my take on ARBs, and I was, I was like, do you really want to open that can of worms? I mean, look at the, the We have to, you know, people need to equip Michael, themselves. they have faces on them. <laughs> okay, so people need to equip themselves with some semblance of understanding around principles of pareidolia, principles of... Um, Forced perspective, given that a photograph is a two-dimensional representation of a three-dimensional world, and therefore you can get false perspective. Is it an object that's 12 inches across right next to my head in the photo, or is it a microscopic particle of dust millimetres from a lens? And, and you know, the, the, the theories have been tested, research has been done. Steve, the, the, the stereoscopic camera, for example, with the lens of 77, right. you know, that's a, a perfect example of how 
how we can misinterpret. Okay. Uh, Anyways, we... that, unfortunately, that was the bell, so uh, I have to get some stuff in before we say goodbye. And uh, that is the tune in tomorrow night to Ghost Chronicles Next Generation right here on Tojanet and Pyrex Radio when we will have a uh, EVP panel discussion with Mike Markowitz, uh, Cody uh, Besbian, and uh, Jim Stonia from the NEGP. And uh, that should be intriguing as well. And we'll be doing uh, some experiments. They will actually play some of their EVPs, but will not give you any idea what the hell they are. So, but, but that being said, we also going to uh, launch a new experiment uh, worldwide, hopefully. And on five, May 5th, five, uh, five at five fifty five Eastern standard time. We want everybody to turn on their recorders for five minutes and 55 seconds. And uh, we will do a, a, uh, an EVP experiment. Uh, it's modeled after the AA EVP's uh, big circle, uh, although changed a little bit, of course. And uh, anyway, so May 5th at uh, 555. Uh, that's PM, by the way. <laughs> I should make sure. What are you doing at 666? No, that would be in that would be in June. We'll be doing that in June. Seriously. Uh, so, anyways, at uh, five uh, fifty-five on May fifth, that's PM. Turn on your recorders for five minutes and fifty-five seconds, and then we will. Uh, you'll get more details in the upcoming few days. So, anyways, I did want to get in. So, I want to thank uh, Michael so much for joining us today. It was intriguing as always. Well, Ron, you're welcome. And just can I very quickly say happy birthday to my daughter, celebrating her sweet 16th today. Oh, wow. God 16. almighty, time is passing. Yeah, God bless you. Oh, 16. Uh, my son's like 30-something now. No, maybe probably closer to 40. I don't know. What do I know? <laughs> but anyways, uh, anything you want to add, Michael? No, that's 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 it. Really, I, I would be uh, put out in the call if I forgot to mention that tonight. But uh -huh. just look, it's a pleasure to be back on and to chat again. It's always it's always fun and it's always entertaining and it's always engaging. So uh -huh. thank you for that. Thank you, and I'm going to do this. It's Dialin Bon Achete Fila Padrig Dip. So I don't know what the hell I said, but there you go. Good night. God bless. Good night. Can I compress? <laughs> From ghoulies to ghosties, long-leggedy beasties, and things that go bump in the night, deliver us good law.